Hello everyone, and welcome back to the TBD Podcast. My name is James Catanzaro. And I'm Heath Monsford. And today we had on the show Mr. Cass, another English teacher at Pioneer. And we followed his journey from the East Coast where he grew up over to the West Coast where he shuffled around a couple jobs until he finally settled in the Midwest. And they talked about his early start in sports radio and journalism and really stressed the importance of learning from a diverse subset of English teachers with all types of perspectives to kind of form your own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting, the philosophy he brings to teaching, in that he was more focused on the creative writing and the poetic aspects of things, um, as opposed to the traditional analytical essays. Um, And then we also talked about, towards the end, his experiences during coronavirus, the new book he's writing, um, as well as the appreciation that we've all kind of garnered for Pioneer. Yeah, and the inspiration he gets from his community and his mm-hmm. school specifically as well was definitely definitely refreshing to hear and kind of motivating as well to kind of do the most that you can in this time in order to come out of it as a better person, I think. All right, here's Mr. Cass. All right, hello, Mr. Cass. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you guys, James and Heath. Yeah. So the way we usually like to do these interviews is we like to go chronologically and start off with teachers' childhood um, and what they were like growing up and potentially how they got interested in teaching and the subjects that they know. Okay, that's an interesting question. I would say growing up, I never really thought about wanting to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to be a baseball player. That was my goal, you know, play center field for the New York Yankees. Of course, when you stop growing at like five foot six, that's kind of difficult. But that was uh, that was what my goal was, right? I mean, I always loved my my English classes and my social studies classes um, in high school, especially. Uh, I can't say I was a huge fan of like math and science. I did fine, you know, they were cool, but it was definitely my thing for like English and social studies. Um, and I had very because my mom was a teacher. She was a foreign language teacher and like the department chair for our district for foreign language. So I have very strong opinions about education. You know, like I would tell my parents which teachers I thought were doing a good job, which teachers I thought were uh, not doing as well. Um, I was never a fan of you know like uh, note taking or teachers who mandated note taking. I was mm. never a fan of uh, uh, a lot of homework. I was never a fan of uh, focusing your entire English class on writing like five paragraph essays, things like that. So I would have these arguments with my mother all the time, you know, um, and say, well, this is what I, you know, I think the teachers are doing it wrong. I would, if I were an English teacher, I would do it differently. Right. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to college and, and tore up my knee, um, I wonder what else I was going to do with my life. And obviously I wanted to like write, you know, because um, I love writing. but. Uh, beyond that, I didn't really know what else I wanted to do. And I, I first went into journalism. I went to sports journalism, like the early days of sports radio. Um, and that was really fun, but also like very low paying. And I didn't really necessarily see. Well, I got fired from a job. Let's put it that way. I got fired from a job in sports radio in my uh, mid-20s, um, basically because I was too progressive. They said I was too East Coast and I was out there on the on the West Coast in a conservative part of California. And uh, they were calling me like a communist and all this kind of stuff. So I basically got fired. And I was like, well, what am I going to do? And then I remember all the arguments I was having with my mom about the kind of English teacher I would like to have. So I said, well, 
if I'm gonna like keep talking all that smack like I've been doing for years, then maybe you know I could put my money where my mouth is and try to be that English teacher that I always wanted to have. So that was kind of like my, um, you know, my 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 bedrock philosophy and my motivation for becoming an English teacher was really just to try to be that English teacher, the one that I never really had, and I had really good English teachers, but but still to do things the way that I want, thought that English teachers should be able to do them. Um, and so I've kind of lived with that for the last, you know, 25 years, trying to really be the English teacher that I would have wanted to have when I was in high school. Very cool. Um, so can we just go a little bit back into what you were saying earlier? You grew up on the East Coast. Whereabouts mm-hmm. on the East Coast did you grow up? So I grew up in a suburb of New York City called White Plains. Um, okay. which is the home White of Plains like. Well. Oh, you do? I, I grew up in New York City, so. Oh, okay. So yeah, it's like the home of like IBM headquarters and like Nestle and stuff. Um, but yeah, no, I, so I, it was a, it was a very progressive era. Um, I, I grew up there, you know, in the early stages of, uh, of hip hop. Right. So I can remember being, you know, on, in wrestling practices and or wrestling matches, like on the way to like away matches, we'd be on the back of the bus and somebody would be, have the broom handle and like make beats against the floor. And we'd be doing like <laughs> Rapper's Delight, like hotel, motel, holiday in. If your girl starts acting up, then you take her friend. You know, like we'd be doing that. Like that was our, our life. Um, and it was, you know, it's a great place to grow up. I really enjoyed um, coming from that area and uh, and playing sports and, and, and being so close to the city to be able to like go to the city and, and, and see what it was like to be in a like teeming metropolis like that with all kinds of different kinds of people. Um, I never imagined I would live in Michigan. I didn't really even know what Michigan was, really. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad to be here now. That's interesting because a lot of the other teachers we've talked to kind of grew up in Michigan, around Ann Arbor, or in Ann Arbor, um, and really just kind of dedicated themselves to the surrounding community. But it sounds like you kind of went all over the place first. How did you end up in Ann Arbor? Because it sounded like you also went to California for a little while. What was that whole decision-making process? And then how did you end up back in Michigan? Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so um, after I graduated college, which was also on the East Coast, um, I worked for a couple of years, kind of, you know, like a lot of people do sort of messing around outside of, after college, not really knowing what they're trying to do. I was working as a, a wrestling coach back at the high school where I, where I went and I was working for ABC News in New York City, uh, ABC Radio News, and, and I didn't really know what I was going to do. And then I decided I would go to journalism school. So I went to journalism school in New York City. Um, where I met uh, my fiance, you know, at the time she was not my fiance, but I met her and then like, you know, how things work, she becomes my fiance. Right? Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> right? um, and that was, that was like a pretty great time to be alive in, in New York city and just having a lot, you know, a lot of fun. Um, and then, you know, we were kind of, after we graduated uh, journalism school was the, it was 1991 and, and the country is in the midst of an, uh, a recession. It was very hard to get jobs. Journalism has changed a lot in the last 30 years. Um, and that was just sort of the beginning of newspapers starting like, you know, it used to be that every city had its own daily newspaper, but a lot of them started closing and, you know, news sources became more broadcast and there wasn't the internet yet. So it was very hard. So I figured, okay, well, you know, I, I'll try to do sports radio because I was just getting started. And I think, ah, you know, that'd be fun to like talk about sports all day. Um, so we didn't know where to go. Like we didn't know what to do, but my wife was Canadian. Um, so she decided that she was going to try out for the Canadian national rowing team because she'd been on that before. 
I mean, they tra- trained in uh, Vic- Victoria, British Columbia. So it was like, all right, well, let's let's move to Seattle, and then you can train, um, and I'll try and get a job there. So we did, and I, you know, I was doing sports radio in Seattle. I was a producer uh, for someone who became pretty famous, a woman named the Fabulous Sports Babe, who eventually went on to like work for ESPN National Radio. It was crazy. It was a ridiculous time, but it was fun because we had the the guy who owned the radio station um, also owned the Seattle SuperSonics at the time. So we got tickets to go to the Sonics games, and they had a really cool team. They were like sean kemp and like young gary payton it was like really awesome you know it was about a decade before they moved to uh, oklahoma city so and it was a great time to be in seattle because it was just like the post grunge era um or sort of like the beginning of that and you know starbucks was just starting and uh, microsoft was doing its thing so it was it was kind of a cool time to be there um but then i got an on-air job offered an on-air job in southern california so that's when we moved from there and and karen who was you know my, my wife uh, she got a job coaching crew at Mills College in Oakland, California. So we both moved to California. We were there for about five years. I, I, got, I was in Southern California and she was in Northern California. And I was hard because I had to commute on the weekends. You know, I would, I would live in Southern California during the week for our show. And then I drove back up north every weekend. And I had an old beat up Chevy Cavalier that I was driving. And it's about, you know, a, a six hour drive from like Los Angeles to the Bay Area. And it was it was busted like the radio was busted. You had to like hold the on off button down if you wanted the music to play. So I had yeah. to do that for like six hours, and that would make like <laughs> a hole in my finger, which was crazy. But then I so you know in in California we lived there for about five years. That's when I stopped uh, being in radio and decided to try to be a teacher. So I started teaching California, taught in California for three years. Um, James probably might remember this, but like I taught at this huge high school, like twice the size of Pioneer. It was more than twice. It was 4,400 students um, in Union City, California. It was absolutely huge. And it was incredibly diverse. Like no ethnic population was more than 17%. Like it'd be like 17% white, 17% African-American, 17% Latino, Mexican, 17% you know, Asian, 17% Pacific Islander. It was crazy. It was a really incredible place to teach. And I learned so much about teaching there and just about um, getting outside of my own comfort zone and relating to like kids from lots of different kind of backgrounds, you know? Um, and then we moved here because Karen got a job coaching crew at U of M. Right. And usually, you know, like when the U of M athletic department calls you to come coach, you know, you don't, that's yeah, not you don't pass that no out, to, no. Right. So we came here and that was in 1997, I think. And so I started teaching at pioneer. I won't go into that whole story, but it was like crazy circumstances. There was a teacher who was on paid leave. For because of some supposedly inappropriate behavior with a student. And, and I came in as like uh, the long-term sub because um, I had three years of teaching in California and, uh, you know, it kind of went on from there. So, yeah. Well, well yeah. also, did you play baseball in college? You talked about tearing up your knee. Was that due to wrestling in college or uh, baseball? Well, that's a very interesting question, James. I don't know if I would use the verb play, uh, <laughs> I would say I played as much in college as right now. My son is playing for the Pioneer hockey team and actually sings the <laughs> ice. So um, I was what's known as the bullpen catcher, i.e., mm. the 40th man on the 40 man roster. Um, so yeah, you know, did I play? I played like I, I ended up playing two years because I did tear up my knee. Um, but I, uh, you know, I got in like very little on the field. But uh, mm-hmm. I actually tore my knee playing football which I had never been allowed to do in high school because my parents said, you know, you can't play three sports unless you have a 4.0. And I didn't have that until like right almost before I graduated. So 
Um, I was just a wrestler, a baseball player in high school. And then college, I wrestled a little bit too and played baseball, but it was like hard to do both. So I stopped wrestling after my freshman year. And then my sophomore year, I was like, well, I got to do something else. And I started playing intramural football. They have this really great like intramural football program, like full pads and everything. And I was so into it. I was like a little nose guard. And I was just like <laughs> going in there and like try to get the center off his feet and sack the quarterback. It was so fun. But then like one day, there was like a varsity football player who had like quit the day before. And he yeah, comes out on problem. our intramural yeah. team, right? And so I was the nose guard and he played linebacker. And so I was like standing up the center one play and he like blitzed and he just like blitzed right through my knee, right? And like it like tore a bunch of stuff. But I didn't want to like tell my baseball coach because I was like, oh man, I'm already like barely seeing any playing time. I can't like tell my baseball coach I got hurt playing football. So I didn't tell anybody like an idiot. And, you know, like a few days later, I was diving for a fly ball in batting practice and I just like tore everything in the knee. It just like. And you just came off, came clean yeah, off. Yeah, basically. So yeah. that was like the end of the baseball career in college, James. But that's, you know, I mean, that was really hard. And I actually really struggled in college partially for that reason. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, in the good thing about it, it was like the only other thing that I cared as much about as playing sports, like in terms of. You know, I, I'm sure you feel the same way, Heath, like when you're skating in the middle of the game and like there's nothing else on your mind other than like just chasing a puck or, you know, making getting to the spot where you are and you're kind of like in that zone. And mm-hmm. the only thing that matters is that moment. Like the only other feeling I could get doing something was writing, right? So like the, that was the only comparable activity for me. So the fact that I ended up like, you know, stopped playing sports like halfway through college that led me into writing because that was the only other activity that I could divest, like invest like my whole self into in the same mm-hmm. way that you could invest into sports. Um, and then did it was writing and was it broadcasting to a certain extent too? Was, <laughs> did you like the speaking part of it? The talking? I do. I mean, there was, you know, like I, 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 I like talking about sports and, and sports radio was just kind of starting when mm-hmm. I was in college. And, you know, the, the famous station was WFAN in New York city. And they had a, a duo, uh, Mike and the Mad Dog, you know, Mad Dog, Christopher Russo, who now has like Mad Dog Sports on Sirius FM, um, mm-hmm. Sirius XM. And so I used to listen to those guys daily. Even when I was in college in Connecticut, I could still get the broadcast, right? And so that was just so fun to like, oh, a whole radio station just devoted to people talking about sports. And, you know, it's different. Like you listen to the Detroit sports station here, if, if you do, or the Ann Arbor one, and they're fine. But like when New York people are arguing about sports, that's yeah. a whole nother level. You know what I mean? Mad, Mad Dog Sports <laughs> is, is an entertaining listen for sure. Yeah. I you think. know, and so I, I like, you know, I was into that and then I tried to get into that field and, you know, it was, that's just a really hard field when you're starting out and, you know, I was in my mid twenties and making like 15,000 a year and I got fired from one station and I, I kind of could have kept doing that, but, um, you know, I decided to, to go into teaching instead and I did get offered a job one time and I kind of regret it. I got offered a job to do play-by-play for a minor league baseball team in Pullman, Washington, right, which is like the eastern side of Washington. Um, and I and I almost took it. I was going to pay like two hundred dollars a week. And you know, <laughs> Karen was in Seattle, and you know, and, and I was like, I don't know, man. So, but I didn't, you know. And then I, I kind of did the talk radio thing for a few years, and then I, you know, ended up going to teaching. But um, a little bit more I, stable of a professor. It is a little more stable. No yeah. question, right? And but I took a lot of the um, the talk radio skills into the classroom. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm, do, especially in terms of like classroom discussion. 
And I don't do it like formally the way I used to. But when I was first teaching in California, and even I think when I did it, came to Ann Arbor for a few years, I did it where I would do something called K-World on Friday afternoons. And there were just like discussions, like class discussions about what we we're talking about in literature or whatever. And I would, have, would make these little like promos with like music and, you know, tape them and, and then run the class like a talk radio show. And it'd be like, James in the corner, you're on the air. What's on your mind? You know? And then he'd talk for a while and I'd be like, all right, James, thank you. Let's go to uh, Heath over there in the first row. Heath, what do you think about James just said? You know, and kind of run it like a sports talk show. And it was really fun for a while. Um, but then I just got old and didn't have the energy to like make the intro <laughs> anymore. So, you know, now I just have discussions, but right. on Zoom, that's a challenge. Right. Um, well, was that part of what you wanted to change from the English teachers that you'd had before with the tests and the quizzes and the essays and whatnot? You wanted it to be a little bit more discussion based and just kind of discover. Well, it's a lot, together. but yeah, that's part of it. And I, I actually had really good, um, English teachers in terms of just having class discussions. And I think that was actually more of like a bigger thing. Back in the, the 80s when I was in high school, like, you know, the classroom discussion, at least where I was going to school, was really valued. And it's not that it's not valued now, but there's a lot of classes where it's like, oh, you know, here, do this worksheet or, you know, especially on Zoom, like, okay, time for asynchronous work, everybody, or just let me share my screen and tell you what's going on. But there's not that, like, back and forth in the same way inside the classroom. So, yeah, that's a big part of it. But there's also, like, as much as I... You know, I really believe in, in writing and different genres and aspects of writing being just as valuable, if not more valuable than the five paragraph essay or mm -hmm. the analytical essay. So I always wanted to introduce a lot more creative writing into the curriculum. And of course, I teach creative writing, a pioneer, but even just in like the 10th grade class, like James probably remembers, you know, that I wanted to do like a whole poetry unit for several weeks and like mm -hmm. make sure that, you know, we weren't just only that the only thing it wasn't just that the only thing was valued was the analytical essay um so that was a big part of too what i went out to do as a teacher yeah did you also write in college like we've heard the, the baseball thing but um what did you like study most in college and like did that lead you anywhere because i mean you said you had good high school or high school english teachers but were there professors in college that kind of taught you things that you had never known or anything yeah oh definitely definitely right like um i was pretty cynical you know i went to school on the east coast not far from where i grew up and i kind of wish i would have gone to like a big huge big 10 school like michigan or you know michigan state or something because I, I don't know there's something about the school where i was at that i just didn't it wasn't really right for me at the time i mean i made some really good friends there but i i just i don't know I, it wasn't really right for me and i had a very cynical attitude toward a lot of my professors especially in english where there there was a big um a trend a kind of literary movement at the time called deconstructionism which was a way of like looking at a piece of text um and tearing it apart in like word by word and and looking at like how sentences were constructed and what did that mean about the intent of the author and all this kind of thing and it was it was it was really like deep but it was also like it just made reading a really like painful experience. Right. Mm -hmm. So I would be like, Oh man, I just want to like read a book and like talk about what we think it means and like what the characters are doing and not talk about like, Oh man, how the, like the, the, I don't know, the senses are constructed and everything. So super micro details. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was, that was part of it. I, I, I took a couple creative writing classes in college. Um, I took one called daily themes, which was actually, phenomenal like that was a class where 
you had a five day week, right? Like we always do. And you had to write something new every day. Um, you weren't meeting in class every day, but there were like two lectures a week. And then on Friday, you would meet with like a TA, a teaching assistant, you know, graduate student. And they would look at the five pieces of writing you produced that whole week. And that was like super fun. I love that. You know, my roommates were like a lot of econ majors and math and science guys were like, what are you doing? You got to write a paper like every night. And I was like, yeah. And it's awesome. Right. And I would like make up stuff. And it was so fun. There was like so many, so much like flexibility to like write whatever you wanted. Um, and then I would meet with the guy on, on Fridays and he would look at it and say, yeah, this is kind of good. This is sort of interesting. And you know, this piece over here is pretty cliche. You're not pushing yourself very hard. And he was like brutally honest. And I totally appreciated that. You know, it felt like, whoa, this is how you learn how to be a writer. Right. Mm -hmm. So I did start writing then. And for my, I convinced somebody, I can't remember who my, my advisor was at the time, but I convinced somebody that for my senior, like thesis, graduate, graduating thesis, I could write a novel, right. Instead of writing some long essay. So I did. And I wrote this like absolutely like horrible novel. I mean, I'm ashamed to look at it today. It is like the worst thing ever. It was like the basic plot. And again, this is like the eighties, right? So the basic plot was there was this woman who had been like sexually assaulted or something like that. Oh, no, no. Her sister had been sexually assaulted and then like killed and by like the assailant. And so she was trying to like get back at all like males all over the world by like getting the HIV virus and then like intentionally spreading it to them, you know? And I was like, <laughs> this dark, is, yeah. it's the worst. I mean, it's the worst book ever written that anyone has ever typed out on their keyboard, right? Like it's horrible, but I'm glad I wrote it because it taught me how to like write a book, you know, like it was mm -hmm. terrible, but going through that process is what helped me write a better novel, right? So I did start kind of writing there in college that way. But then when I got out of college, I did not know that there was something called an MFA program in creative writing. Like I didn't know how you could continue to learn about the craft of writing. Mm -hmm. And that's why um, I applied to journalism school because I thought that was the only way that you could like keep writing and get, you know, teaching about it. So when I went to journalism school, it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to be a journalist. It was like, I wanted to like keep writing. So the journalism school program I went to is in New York city is only one year, but it was amazing. And I was, and this is also a message for anybody who's out there as a student. Like I was a good student in high school, but I mean, I got good grades, but I was not like a dedicated learner in high school, really, other than in English and social studies and in college and undergrad, really bad. You know, like I had a 2.0 or like something, maybe that a 2.0, like my first semester of freshman year. And that's why after freshman year, I quit wrestling because I was like, okay, I can't graduate with a 2.0, you know, right, and I kept right. playing baseball and eventually got graduated maybe with like a 2.75 but i was not a really good student in college i have to say you know i i did some things that i loved i worked hard on but most of like nah but when i got to graduate school it was different you know because at that point i was like all right i'm paying for this uh, i want to learn something and i like stopped being like the goofball idiot in the classroom and more like okay i'm sitting in the front of the class i'm paying attention i might not take notes because that's not my thing but i'm paying attention I'm going to do all my reading, all my assignments. And I worked really hard in journalism school, you know, and I learned how to write in a kind of journalistic style. Um, and that led me into sports radio. Eventually, you know, I did go back to get an MFA, but that was not until like 2009 or something like that. And that was, I did like one of those like distance learning. Um, they call it a, uh, shoot, what do they call it? I don't even remember. 
Um, it's not like a full residency program, but it's one of those, um, an MFA where you like go for like 10 days in summer and have really intense classes and lectures. And it's like summer camp for writing. And then you come back and then for six months you do, uh, communicating with a professor and you just send your professor at work and they send it back to you and give you feedback. Um, and then you do the same thing in the winter, like 10 days in January. And that was a two year program and I loved it. And I was like, again, that student who sat in the front row, always trying to participate never missed a lecture, never missed a reading assignment, you know, did everything the best I could. Um, mm -hmm. And that's where like a couple of my books came from, like Knuckleheads came out of that program. Uh, Wrestle the Great Fear came out of that program. And that, that really taught me how to write poetry and fiction. That program. Okay. So that, that program is when you picked up your poetic writing, right? Because well, I have been writing poems before that. Mm -hmm. Um, so this is like the, also the story of like what leads to the whole neutral zone and, and the poetry slam and everything is that when I was in California, um, the Bay Area was just kind of starting like the idea of poetry slam. So this is like the mid nineties, which had, the poetry slam had started in Chicago. And I want to say like 1990, but um, it was starting to spread around the country and it was really vibrant in San Francisco. And my brother went to a poetry slam and competed in it. And I was like, wow, tell me about that. That sounds cool. So he told me about writing? It. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. So I was like, I'm going to try this. And I wrote this like horrible poem about OJ Simpson, you know, about like watching his white Bronco go down the highway. And I remember it was like, it was all about TV culture and like ridiculousness. It was awful. But I competed in Poetry Slam. I came in last. And I was like, oh, wow, this is pretty cool, though. Like these other poets are great. And I'm going to try and learn. So I kept trying to learn how to be in Poetry Slams and what that was like. And I still kept coming in last because there were great poets in San Francisco. But then my brother, he started the Youth Poetry Slam in San Francisco. He's like, this Poetry Slam is pretty cool. Let me see if I can do this with young people. So, because he was getting his MFA at the time at San Francisco State. And so he started that. And I took, I went to see his first ever Youth Poetry Slam. And I was like, oh my God, this is like the way I need to be teaching. Because these students are so excited about language. And they're so excited about their imagination that this is what needs to be happening in my classroom. And I already won like a big award my first year teaching for like best new teacher in the state of California kind of thing, right? But I was like, uh, no, I'm not good as a teacher because look at these students and look how passionate they are and I need to do something different. So I brought the Poetry Slam back to my school where I was teaching um, and, and started teaching a lot more poetry in class, right? And when I was teaching the poetry to my students, I also was like, okay, I'm not going to give my students an assignment to write unless I'm willing to do it myself, right? So I would have them write a poem. Okay, you're reading To Kill a Mockingbird. Let's write a poem in the voice of Boo Radley, you know, what it's like to be Boo Radley. And so mm -hmm. I would do that too and say, here's my example, you know? And so I wrote a lot of poems like that. And I kind of got really into writing poetry, kind of self-taught and then kind of learning from people in the slam community and making a lot of contacts and friends in the slam community and kind of teaching myself. Um, so that was kind of where my poetry really came from. And by the time I went to get the MFA in 2009, I had already written like, uh, I don't know, several hundred poems and gotten some poems published and, you know, small chapbooks of poetry published and, and things like that. So I wasn't new to poetry when I got there. Um, but I did like learn a lot more about poetry and like how to write it better than I knew. Um, and then also like when I moved here from California, cause Karen got the, the job coaching U of M, that's when. I went to the neutral zone and said, can I start a youth poetry program in Ann Arbor? And that kind of led to all the poetry slams in Ann Arbor and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about like all the neutral zone stuff? Because that was, 
certainly something you incorporated into your classroom even a little bit in 10th grade. You would incentivize us to go out into the community and whether it be at the neutral zone or like the public library, um, just go to these poetry events or see people speak. So um, like, I didn't know that you started it at the neutral zone though. And like, how long has that been going on for? Yeah. So like, I think coming up the way I did through the poetry world and like learning from like a lot of different people and a lot of different communities, like, yes, I would go to academic poetry workshops, but I would also, you know, go to the poetry slams and open mics and things like that. And um, it made me understand the idea that, you know, one writing teacher can tell you one thing, but, you know, lots of different writing teachers can tell you a lot of different things. And sometimes it might seem in conflict with each other, but like the more exposure you get to people who make art in different ways, the more you're going to come to your own voice and your own writing style. So as a teacher, you know, obviously I have a kind of um, obnoxious, kind of bombastic personality at times. So I don't want students to think that I'm the only one who can teach them something about writing, right? And we live in such a vibrant community in Arbor. Unfortunately, now, obviously, during COVID, it's, it's really hard to get out and do events. But, um, you know, considering we have U of M here, we have a great public library system, we had really cool independent bookstores, um, then we have Eastern down the road. It's like there is so much opportunity for young people to see authors and see writers and, and, and learn from them. So that it's not just my voice they're hearing about how to become an, you know, a thinker, a writer, or a communicator. They could go out and see these things. So I always thought that was really important to try to incentivize that, like give the extra credit or to make it part of the final exam to like go out and see events. And then the neutral zone thing, I'm not there anymore um, because I kind of got too old and they needed a younger voice. And, you know, there's some other reasons too. But like I, I stopped the neutral zone, I want to say four or five years ago, stopped working there. Um, but um, you know, for 20 years, I really tried to build up and give students the opportunity to feel like their voices matter. And this goes again to like our, um, my philosophy for teaching English, right? Like there's a lot of times that an English class can feel like, well, we're going to read this great book for some author, usually white, usually male, usually dead. Um, and you're going to learn about life from this book, right? Mm -hmm. But I always feel like, you know, what students have gone through, even though y'all are young, you know, you guys are, I don't know, 17, 18, however old you are, you're living through this pandemic in the same way that I'm living through it. You're living through, um, you know, what happened with George Floyd last summer, and you're living through the Trump era, and you're living through all that, right? And what you guys have to say about that is just as valuable as what I have to say about it. So, like, I always felt that I wanted to have a space um, in English class and definitely in creative writing class for students to feel like their own perception of the world, their own understanding, their story matters, right? And so it, at the neutral zone, it was great because, you know, you could say things at the neutral zone that you can't say in a school, in a school, right? Like you can, mm -hmm. you know, you can use language, you can delve into topics about, you know, drug use or eating disorder or a sexual assault that you might be really hesitant to talk about in a classroom in school. So we were able to create that community at the neutral zone um, where there was no censorship, where there was like a, a free space for students to really develop their voices as writers. And, and it was awesome to do that for 20 years and be part of the like national movement to grow youth spoken word and try to spread it around the country. And, and so there's a lot of classrooms um, where, you know, you could go in and, and the students know what slam poetry is and the teacher's been teaching it. You know, they've been teaching 
writers like Patricia Smith and uh, Kevin Koval and, you know, these kind of writers that we talk about, uh, James. And it's like, that's, you know, very exciting to me to feel like, you know, it's not like the only poets you're going to look at in a school anymore are like Emily Dickinson, Robert Frost, um, mm -hmm. you know, William Shakespeare, Chaucer. But you can also look at Patricia Smith. You can look at Tim Siebel's. You can look at Angel Nafis and you can learn from those people too and what they have to say. And also, you know, encourage the students. You know, I'll, I'll be in there teaching a poem to my creative writing class that a 10th grader wrote last year. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'll be like, look what this writer did. Look what this writer's talking about. You know, and, and I think that changes the way that students can enter the learning environment if they feel like what they have to say is really important and what they create is really important. Um, that's a good answer, right? right? Yeah, no, that's a great answer because I, I mean, I've definitely, as you know, someone who's straight and white and all those things, male, that a lot of those voices sound familiar to me. But um, we like we did a Patricia Smith poem what three months ago in our yeah. English class, um, and that was I, I enjoyed that more than anything else we had read so far that year, just because it, it showed me um, a different world um, than I was available to. So I think that. Uh, incorporating those different voices is really kind of vital to making an English class. Yeah, if um, you ever got the yeah. chance to meet Patricia, also, by the way, you would love Patricia, and Patricia is like a walking jukebox. Like, if you ask her to sing any lyric that was written for any song between, like, 1961 and 1990, she will be able to sing that whole song for you. You know, she's, <laughs> I mean, she's absolutely incredible that way. And she's like, I, I, Patricia is, you know, She's something else. She's an unbelievable writer and like a real important American voice. And it's just so incredible to have her work available for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So talking about like the, all the discussion stuff kind of segues into online learning really well. And oh, we want to know just how that's done, especially with creative writing, but also with those, I, I assume you're still teaching those English 10 students. And yeah. How... How has it been since last spring and the weird startup to now where we have some sense of online normalcy and, you know, preparations to go back as well? Has it been really difficult? You know, some teachers view it as a challenge that they want to take on every morning. And then some teachers just view it as a doomless. Or not, that one, not that one is better than another. Yeah. How, how honest do you want me to be, James? You can completely <laughs> as as much as possible yeah. without getting in trouble with the administration. <laughs> okay. All right. So um creative writing has actually um gone really well, right? Because creative writing is kind of built in a way for like putting kids in breakout rooms and having them share their work with each other. Um and you know, share it all. I think it's better face to face, right? It's you can have more emotional experiences. But um I do think that creative writing has been able to be very successful online. And, and one of the things I've learned over this past year is that I really enjoy Zoom readings. You know, I love the fact that there can be a, a poet in New York City and I can go to their reading from my dining room table, you know, and, and listen to it. But I just went to the reading from uh, Carlina Dewan, you know, former pioneer student who's now published her second book on Friday. And it was amazing. There were 150 people there from all over the country, you know, and, and so it was like, that's great. And I hope when we do get back to like live readings of bookstores, we'll still be able to make them available on Zoom for other people to attend. And so in a lot of ways, like the art of creative writing can still succeed in the, in the Zoom environment, right? Um, English 10, that's another story, right? So um, 
I have sympathy for students who don't want to put their cameras on, right? But not a lot, to be honest, right? And like, I haven't had a haircut in a year. You know, this is not a good look, right? You know what I'm <laughs> saying? Man, yeah. It's a, it's uh, it is not a good look. It's not a nice <laughs> blow, as the hockey players say. No, no quality lettuce there. No, right? no lettuce. Yeah. So, but you know, I could put a hat on and be like, okay, y'all, let's get to work, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I want to be able to see my students' faces, and that's the hardest part, right? Like, if I have a class um, of thirty kids, right, and only four or five put their cameras on. That's really hard to communicate. And I don't know what those students are doing who don't have their cameras on. You know, they could be playing, you know, splashy fish on their phones. They could be watching a movie. They, I have no idea what they're doing, right? So that's like really hard. And, you know, you try to have a discussion and you call on people and you're like, uh, Heath, you out there? You out there, Heath? You out there? 15 second oh, pause. Yeah. You know, and like that just destroys the flow of the conversation in class and you can see those other kids waiting they're like no he's not out there stop asking him you know but it's like you can't just ignore those students and only focus on the five or six who are like always there and always with their cameras on because you know that that you can't teach a class like that you're just like giving up on all the other students so that's like really very very difficult and and james knows that when we did vocabulary quizzes um in our classes you know they're kind of goofy and fun and we can, it's kind of like a group project almost to do it um, and, and, you know, I have the students call out the answers and, you know, it's kind of like an honor system. And, um, you know, I, I know that there's some students who, who were cheating even back then, James, I, you know, I'm not assuming that everyone was honest, but, you know, I thought, what well, can we do these vocabulary quizzes online? You know, can we do it? You know, will everyone just cheat all the time or what? Um, and I decided to do it, you know, like, okay, let's do it. And, and it's certainly not the same thing as, um, you know, doing it the way we used to do it in class with everybody there. But, you know, I figure we're trying. And there's definitely more students cheating now probably than before. And I can't really catch them. But what are you going to do? Like, I feel like we have to do the best we can, right? And um, for me, I'm not, you know, I, I think I struggle with, okay, you have 105 minutes. How much of that is like synchronous and how much is asynchronous? You know, mm-hmm. like I'm sure there's some teachers like, okay, I taught for 30 minutes today and now like you guys got the rest of the time, go do this assignment. But like I don't teach that way because I don't really believe in giving a lot of homework. So like I want to keep have us do, I have reading time at the beginning, James, you know, like we used to do like 15 minutes, but I don't know how many students are actually reading. Mm-hmm. You know, I hope most of them are, but I don't know if they are. Um, and then, you know, we come back and we do vocabulary, we do, talk about the books that we're talking about and i try to have conversations as best we can i think some days are much better than others i'd say on balance there's no way it's as successful as it was in school but it's not like absolutely awful you know what i mean like creative writing is solid and i feel like most of my english classes we have some really good days and we have some days that are not as good and i'll tell you one thing that's really hard james especially like um because so many students don't have their cameras on, like when we're talking about a touchy subject, yeah. like in the mm-hmm. natural, yeah. like we're talking about Roy Hobbs and how he's behaving toward women. Yeah. That's really hard because mm-hmm. I can't read students' facial expressions and see how they're reacting. You know, so I can't be like, oh, wait a second. That's too far. Don't say that or walk that back or, right. or something like that's really, really hard. You know, and I can't tell who's just like it's too much for them. So that that's a difficult thing. I look forward to coming back into school. But I don't know um, if the way that we're doing it right now 
is the way that I would want to do it. But we're going to, you know, it, I'm, I'm just hoping that like next fall, everything goes back more or less to the way we had it before. Um, and we can teach in school. But, you know, I, I, I can't say my students didn't learn anything in the last year. You know, I think they did. I think they have learned. I don't know if it's to the same level as otherwise. I don't think the experience is as strong. I know for my own son, um, I think he really struggles with paying attention in online school. And he really would like to be back in that in-person. And, and that maybe this is the thing that I think is the hardest. You know, you guys are both seniors, right? Yes. So, I mean, what's that like for you that you lost your whole junior spring, that your whole senior year, you know, so far has basically been, you know, not in the building. And this was your chance for you guys to kind of like own the hallways and like, you know, be the ones that everybody look up to and, you know, do the things like, I, I just don't know. Like, okay. So like, if you're a freshman in high school, when you first left last year, and now you're like moving toward the end of your sophomore year, have you learned how to like date anyone? You know how to like flirt with somebody in the hallway. You know, I mean, obviously the world's different. Like you guys do things on phones that I've never would have understood, but like, just like, you know, no homecoming, you know, no prom last year. I don't even know if they've told you guys about prom this year. I don't know if they've said they're, they're they're shooting for it, but um, it's still to be determined. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, I I feel like you guys miss things and it's not just those formal events, but like just the day to day interaction. Like what, what would my son be like right now as a 15 year old, if he'd been in school the last year, you know, Mm -hmm. been able to see his friends every day, you know, talk to teachers face to face compared to how he is now, which half the time he's not paying attention in class. You know, he's, you know, he's got friends that he sees, but it's like the same group pretty much since middle school. I mean, sports Mm -hmm. is the only thing that's different, right? Like sports is like the lifesaver because he gets to meet new people and like, you know, learn and and grow and, and that kind of thing. But I, you know, I, I, I just think it's really hard and I feel bad for what you guys have missed in your years more than anything. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, I think the hardest part. I mean, I'd be lying if, and I, I won't speak for James, but if we were looking back on this time and we didn't think about kind of all the loss and damage and the missed experiences and, um, how it's maybe damaged study habits, mental health, emotional health, all that stuff. But I, I also feel like there is a little bit of a positive to taking a step back, maybe not this long of a step back, but um, (laughs) I know for me personally, it's kind of helped me examine the relationships in my life and the motivations I had to do my schoolwork in the first place. Now that that's all been kind of stripped away and I'm faced with the double punch of senioritis and also being online. Um, And just with all those layers kind of stripped away, it, I think it, it it helps a little bit. It helps to see kind of um, who you are beneath all of this stuff that school can kind of obscure sometimes. Um, and I don't know if James, you've gone through a similar experience or um, yeah, if you, Mr. Cass have felt that at all. Um, I don't know. Well, James, what do you, what do you say? What do you think about that? I love that you said that Heath. What, 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 yeah, what do you think? Uh, well, I, I definitely agree with that, but I think for me specifically, school has been like, kind of just a trance online and when i focus in i'll look at the lost opportunities and i'll think okay what am i really doing here like what what is my motivation for all those things but it's kind of rare that i'm really like thinking like this entire school year it just feels like a trance and then like when i snap out of it and i'm like 
I I just lost so much. We're we're losing prom. We're losing all of our walking through the hallway with, with my chest up, like looking down at all the freshmen. But you know, <laughs> you just I just don't think about that anymore. Like that's just yeah. that's just not how it's been for so long. I never really even expected that. And it's not like I'm living every day thinking like, oh, tomorrow we could go back. Tomorrow I could feel all those things. Like, yeah, I, we we accepted long ago that it was just not going to be a possibility. So that acceptance just kind of has turned the school year for me into like a long, just monotonous push. And then yeah. I'm like, yeah, you know, we're lo- we're losing out on that stuff. But yeah, I do think uh, a positive certainly has been plenty of time to step back and think like well not a lot going on right now so i've got to look at like who i really am because like if you want to do nothing for once you can really really do nothing you can ask all your friends for the homework you can turn your camera off you can go through the whole day with the most minimal amount of effort and if you really want to get involved and make the best out of it you can do exactly that as well so i think the spectrum effort is as broad as it's or as wide as it's ever been mm-hmm. because like going to school you just feel you feel bad about s- sleeping in class or being on your phone you know you're not even allowed to do that in certain classes but you, we're given so much freedom now that you really also come to terms with like the consequences of being at the lazier end of the spectrum as opposed to the hard-working one so mm-hmm. yeah those are i mean those are really great insights it makes me think a lot like i, I you know I, I agree, like, for sure, like he said, like, I think there's something that's been really positive to, like, slowing down and taking a step back, right? So, like, you know, my last book was this poetry collection about, you know, being a, a pizza delivery driver for Cottage Inn at the same time as teaching, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is primarily to do things like pay ice bills, right? So, um, you know, and, and, and then after that, um, the last couple of years I've been like driving Lyft after school, you know, and, and staying up till midnight sometimes like giving people's rides around Ann Arbor or like even going to Ipsy or, you know, Detroit some nights. Um, and now I stopped doing that during the pandemic. Cause I just thought it was like too dangerous. And I can't imagine going back to that. I can't imagine going back to that schedule of teaching all day and then working, driving Lyft at night. You know, I just, I don't see that as being a worthwhile way to live my life. You know, even if we don't have the money, I can't, I need time with my family. I need time to be writing more. I need time to sleep better. Right. So I, I, I can't go back to that. So I agree with what both of you guys said that there's this kind of like walking back and assessing what's really important to you. What kind of person do you want to be? And I've actually, um, I started a novel in November um, and I'm already like 240 pages in, which is like an unheard of writing pace for me. Um, yeah. And it's, and it's because it's about like what we're talking about. And it's, it's kind of like the two main characters are a father and a son. And the father kind of thinks back to like his high school experiences and what he's going through compared to what his son is going through now. And I'm not going to say it's based on like my relationship with Julius, but obviously like a lot of that is kind of in there. And it, it's sort of like trying to understand um, how the young person can stay motivated. Like that's a big part of the story is like, what does that young person do when there's so much temptation to just like pull the covers up, put the camera on so your name's on the screen, pull the covers up and just like fall asleep, you know, mm-hmm. tune out. Um, but also to what you're saying, James, about like the spectrum, like I just, you know, Future Stars on Saturday was so incredible to me, you know, and, and that, that Pete Theater Guild was able to pull that off and the students were able to like do that as well as they did it. 
um, and put that crazy amount of effort into it, that just shows you that that effort's still there, you know, and it's under the surface and it's waiting to come out. And that, you know, if we can find a way and, and, my, and partially, I think the way to find is just like, let y'all figure it out. Like, what do you guys think you need to be doing? Um, then you guys can still have like really powerful experiences and really like push yourself to become the people that you can become because, you know, we are trying to like set up these like crazy structures. And like, when we go back to school in a few weeks, it's going to be like so crazy, but like, maybe we should just like let you guys tell us what you need, you know, and like what is going to allow you to, you know, explore the things you need to explore over the next few months, especially as seniors, right? Like you got two months left in high school. You know, I kind of feel like, why can't we just say, Keith, James, what do you want these last two months to be? You tell us and we'll try to figure it out to make it work for you. And I ended up like, you know, this, uh, this book, there's kind of like, I'm having them on this journey right now. Like it's set in like an East coast college town. It's kind of like Ann Arbor, but different. And I'm having them go on this journey to Iowa for like a seven on seven football tournament because like sports are open in Iowa during the pandemic, but not in the Mm -hmm. states where they live. And I had them stop in Ann Arbor um, on the drive. And I had them go to like the big house because, you know, they're football players and like, oh, let's go check out the big house. And I had them park, you know, their RV that they're on for this trip in the Pioneer parking lot. So they would go look at the big house. I thought (laughs) I was just going to have this like, you know, short half a page scene, like a little shout out to Ann Arbor that they're like checking out the big house. But then future stars happen. Right. And there was that like moment of future stars where they had the uh, rising stars like dancing in front of the uh, the flagpole entrance at Pioneer. Right. And I was like, so like moved by that. Like, oh, my God, there's freshmen there who have never been a Pioneer. And they're like dancing in front of the school. Sorry, I'm getting choked up. So like I actually wrote like 10 pages now about like these guys being in this parking lot and like i made up this scene about like the the students there like practicing for like a graduation rehearsal and they're doing like poems and music and singing and all that stuff and it's kind of like this like love letter now to like Mm -hmm. the like spirit of pioneer so i don't know yeah pioneer is a special place for sure um very grateful to have been able to go there for the time that i was um, even if we did get to miss out on, you know, owning the school. Um, well, you just got to own it in the way that you guys are owning it. You know, like, I mean, you know, James do the hockey broadcast and you guys do your podcast and, you know, you go dig for the puck in the corner and like, you know, that's <laughs> what you got to do, right? Like you got to just make it what you can make it um, right. and, and have the experience that you're going to have. Yeah. Might as well leave it all out there. That's kind of the mentality that I've tried to adopt and just come from less of a place of, um you know like i should be doing this and more like i i, I want to do this this is this is what brings me the most happiness when i feel like i put my all into things whether that be hockey or schoolwork or the yeah, podcast for sure. yeah. yeah yeah okay well i mean I, I hate to wrap it up on a somber note like that <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's not a somber note though like what i'm trying to say yeah. is like i was so inspired by future stars that i spent like six hours like writing fiction about it you know like based on Mm -hmm. like that that experience and trying to like put something out into the world some kind of book that's like showing that like despite everything that's happened over the last year like the spirit of the youth the spirit of young people the talents you guys have 
is going to come through. You know, mm-hmm. you guys are going to like find a way to survive this like terrible year, you know, and, and you're going to find a way. It's going to be different roads for different people and some people are struggling, but like you guys are finding that you're going to find that way to like make it happen. So to me, that's not a bummer. Like to me, that's like, okay, this year sucked, but you know, you'll make it an important part of your life in a way that will help you grow into the future. And we make a lot of stupid decisions at Pioneer, you know, uh, we do, but you guys are going to make it work. And that gives me faith to like keep trying to be a teacher, you know, and, and, and do the best I can because no matter what the circumstances are, there's still like kids in front of me in the classroom and they still, you know, need to like have the chance to become the person that they can become. Right. Definitely. And especially if, you know, more people are taking that step back, assessing themselves, and then we go back to normal and there's kind of a new hopeful, hopeful sense, heightened sense of everyone's self-awareness of like each other and how um, they're making each other feel, but also like how they deal with emotions as well. Mm -hmm. Like, I think everyone's just going to be a lot more grateful yeah i think a lot more i hope so right i hope so but how long will that last you know will it be like that like next february when everyone's like ah where's spring break so i don't know (laughs) maybe maybe well anyway that might not be such a bad thing though if things do go back to normal like that no yeah for sure for sure okay well thank you so much for coming on this was really that's great man you guys are awesome i you know wish you guys the best good luck to both of y'all it's been fun talking to you yeah thank you see you Bye. bye guys This has been another episode of the TBD Podcast. My name is Heath Monsman. And I'm James Catanzaro. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.